and welcome to Clerkship Ready Pediatrics, a podcast aimed at helping you excel during your clinical clerkship in pediatrics. I'm Dr. Sam Baldazzo, and I'm a pediatric resident at the University of Virginia. Today, we will be reviewing what you need to know for your first patient with an eating disorder. First, we'll start with a clinical scenario. Feel free to pause this podcast at any point if you want a moment to apply the information you are learning to the case. You're seeing a 14-year-old girl in your primary care clinic. She has no known medical conditions, but has been seeing a therapist in the community for anxiety for the last year or so. She plays for her junior varsity soccer team and also runs track in the off-season. She enjoys reading mystery novels and sketching. She hopes to take an AP art class next year in high school. Her grades are generally A's and B's, but she got her first C last semester. On your one-on-one exam, she reveals that she has some concerns about her body, saying, I look fat compared to my friend. She tells you that she often skips breakfast because she doesn't have time before school and usually eats a light lunch and a light dinner because she feels full. Reviewing her growth curve, she has lost 20 pounds in the last six months. At this point, it's important to ask why she has lost weight. Please do this respectfully and without judgment. Use open-ended questions and let her fill in the story. Be careful using BMI as a measure, as it is not an accurate predictor of health, and a drop from a high BMI into a lower percentile can be mistaken as appropriate. Any sudden weight loss, regardless of starting point, should be worked up. Let's review the diagnostic criteria for the various eating disorders, all taken from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM-5. The first is anorexia nervosa, which has three criteria. The first is restriction of energy intake relative to requirements, leading to a significantly low body weight. The second is an intense fear of gaining weight or becoming fat, or persistent behavior that interferes with weight gain. The third is a disturbance in the way in which one's body weight or shape is experienced. There are two subtypes within anorexia. The first is restricting type, which has symptoms that have been primarily consisting of restriction for the last three months, or binge purge type, in which symptoms have included binge eating and or purging episodes in the last three months. The second one you will see is bulimia nervosa, which consists of recurrent episodes of binge eating, defined as eating an amount of food that is larger than others would normally eat in a discrete time, and a sense of a lack of control over eating during the episode. The second criteria is recurrent inappropriate compensatory behaviors to prevent weight gain, And the third criteria is self-evaluation unduly influenced by body, weight, or shape. The next is Avoidance Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, or ARFID. This criteria includes an eating or feeding disturbance with an apparent lack of interest in eating or food, avoidance based on the sensory characteristics of food, or a concern about the aversive consequences of eating, as manifested by persistent failure to meet appropriate nutritional or energy needs. There is often marked interference with psychosocial functioning, and the eating disorder is not better explained by another eating disorder. The last distinct disorder to consider is binge eating disorder, which is characterized by recurrent episodes of binge eating. These episodes look like eating in a discrete period of time, an amount of food that is definitely larger than what most people would eat in a similar period of time or under similar circumstances, as well as a sense of a lack of control over eating during this episode. The final thing to consider is eating disorder not otherwise specified, or EDNOS, which is the category into which eating disorders that are difficult to classify fall. Returning to our case, 
the patient reports that she does not engage in binge eating episodes. She does not vomit after meals or take medicines that cause her to vomit or to increase stooling. She does report that she gets significant anxiety when she sees women in magazines at the store, and she weighs herself at home to determine if she should eat dinner. She reports that she had menarche, or initial menstrual cycle, at age 11, but has not had one in the last seven months. What eating disorder do you think our patient might have? At this point, her symptoms mostly align with anorexia nervosa, restrictive type, but a true diagnosis will take further time and further discussion. So, you suspect an eating disorder in this patient. What are your next steps? First, look out for the following physical exam findings, such as small or thin body habitus, hair loss, loss of subcutaneous fat, which you can see on the face or around the joints, and also lanugo, or a layer of long, thin hair, which is easiest to see on the arms. Also, if you're concerned about vomiting as a purging behavior, look out for knuckle calluses, dental enamel erosion, and salivary gland enlargement. You should also be paying attention to vitals, as patients with eating disorders may be bradycardic, hypotensive, or even hypothermic. When looking at vitals, consider the criteria for admission to the hospital. Per the American Psychiatric Association, for malnutrition in the setting of eating disorder, the criteria for admission are heart rate less than 50 beats per minute while awake, blood pressure less than 90 over 60 in adults, or 90 over 45 in children, a blood glucose less than 60 milligrams per deciliter, any marked electrolyte abnormalities, greater than 10% weight loss in six months or greater than 20% weight loss in one year, or acute medical complications of malnutrition, such as seizures, syncope, prolonged QT, pancreatitis, or arrested growth and development. Additionally, if you have concerns about this patient being able to maintain their nutrition at home, or if they have previously struggled without patient management, it can be appropriate to hospitalize them at that point. Returning to our case, you have left the patient's room and are reviewing the patient's chart. She has a blood pressure of 95 over 60, and our clinic did not do any orthostatic vitals. Her pulse is 48 beats per minute at rest. Her vital signs are otherwise within normal ranges. She is reporting some lightheadedness, especially with standing up, and one episode of syncope about two weeks ago. What do you think we should do right now with our patient? Based on her heart rate, she is unsafe to go home and should go to the emergency room for further evaluation and likely hospitalization for management of malnutrition. Remember, if any patient has abnormal or concerning vitals or appears unwell, please check in with your resident or attending so you can make a plan together. You should also consider getting labs, especially a basic metabolic panel or a comprehensive metabolic panel to look at electrolytes. These are crucial in the evaluation for refeeding syndrome. If you have concern for liver function or the patient has no baseline CMP, it may be beneficial to have that lab as a baseline going into her hospital evaluation. Also, remember your differential and consider other labs to work up celiac disease, inflammatory bowel disease, hypothyroidism, or other things that are clinically relevant. All right, now that our patient has been successfully admitted to the hospital, what are our next steps? Nutritional rehabilitation consists of multiple aspects. We would definitely benefit from the support of a nutritionist. At our program, a nutritionist is consulted immediately on admission and a diet plan is made for the patient. Most centers have a protocol that consists of an initial calorie baseline and advances towards a patient-specific goal, with other policies to promote weight gain and to improve electrolyte and cardiac status. These patients are at a high risk of refeeding syndrome. 
electrolyte abnormalities that can occur when a patient is fed from a relatively starved state. We generally get a daily BMP, magnesium, and phosphorus to track as we initiate nutritional rehab. With the bradycardia that often brings these patients in, it is a good idea to get an EKG to ensure there are no underlying heart concerns or arrhythmias related to malnutrition. Additionally, many of these patients require telemetry either during the day, at night, or both. Once the patient is medically stable, it is important to connect them with the next steps for care. Let's talk for a moment about the settings of care for eating disorders. There are five main settings for the care of eating disorders, consisting of outpatient specialist appointments, like adolescent clinics, intensive outpatient programs, partial hospitalization, residential programs, and inpatient hospitalizations, like we've discussed. Outpatient therapy usually consists of individual therapy with cognitive behavioral therapy, but primarily consists of family-based treatment, which focuses on three phases of recovery. The first phase is physical, which consists of weight restoration. The second is behavioral, which consists of a transfer of control step-by-step back to the patient in a developmentally appropriate way. And the third phase is psychological, which consists of a focus on preventing relapse and addressing other psychological concerns contributing to the eating disorder. Patients may then need intensive outpatient, which is offered for a particular part of the day, often centered around meals most days of the week, or they may need residential therapy, which involves living in a facility, but not with medical monitoring that you would see in a hospital. Now that we've reviewed the diagnosis and management of eating disorders, I'd like to go over a few takeaways. First, the identification of eating disorders can be difficult, and it is important to give adolescents time one-on-one to share confidential details about their lives. Look out for acute changes in weight, delay or change in menstrual cycles, reported body insecurity, or concerning behaviors around eating or exercise. Patients with eating disorders are at high risk for future complications, so intervention is important. Studies show that time away from treatment leads to lower rate of remission. These patients often do not initially want help or want to improve their nutrition, so maintaining that physician-patient connection is important. Remember to treat the eating disorder and have compassion for the person. Pay close attention to the vitals and labs for these patients, as they are at risk for cardiac and electrolyte complications related to malnutrition. Orthostatic vitals can be very helpful to determine current symptoms and risk. Remember to get your resident or attending if you are concerned. And finally, hospital management is all about watching as we work on nutritional rehabilitation as well as connecting these patients to the resources they'll need for the next steps. Treatment of eating disorders is often a long road, and they'll need a lot of different team members to help them reach a healthy weight and to improve behaviors around food and body image. Thanks for listening to Clerkship Ready Pediatrics. I hope you found today's podcast helpful. Don't forget to subscribe below and rate the podcast. Thanks. Thanks.